0: Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, the podcast where we talk to our greatest movie makers about the art and craft of making movies. My name is Tim Malloy, and this week we're revisiting a film from earlier this year, Hotel Mumbai, the feature film debut of Australian director Anthony Maris, our guest today. Hotel Mumbai came out in the U.S. in the spring, and we're airing this now, frankly, because I think the movie belongs on best of the year lists and in awards contention. Because of a very complicated releasing situation that we'll talk about in the interview, and Hotel Mumbai's intense subject matter, the film really didn't get the attention it deserved earlier this year. You can watch it now on Hulu and decide for yourself. Hotel Mumbai is based on the true story of the 2008 Mumbai terror attacks, and it stars Dev Patel as one of many employees at a hotel held hostage who risked their lives to save their guests, including new parents, played by Armie Hammer and Nazanin Boniati. Who are desperate to save their newborn child. Maris and his co writer, John Coley, were very careful to do the story justice. The film also just premiered to strong reviews in the country where they most hoped for a positive reception, India. We recorded this talk a few weeks ago. So, congratulations on Hotel Mumbai. Uh, I should be really honest in my biases and say it's one of my two favorite movies I've seen this year. The other being Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and they're so different. I don't really know how to how to put them against each other, but it's on its own merits a fantastic, incredible cinematic experience. Well,
1: thank you, man. I don't even know how to respond to that. Tarantino is one of my heroes, so you know, even to be mentioned in the same sentence is uh, is an honor.
0: How did you come into this story, and can you kind of summarize what this story is?
1: So Hotel Mumbai takes place during the 2008 Mumbai terror attacks. Um, Basically, you had uh, one of the biggest cities in the world, over 20 million people in Mumbai, and the city was brought to its knees when a group of armed jihadists took over the city and attacked 12 sites throughout, um, throughout Mumbai. I'd first come across the story after... Uh, ...seeing a documentary uh, called Surviving Mumbai, which was based on the attacks... ...and it was a first, um, first-hand um, sort of survivor account... ...of what different people who survived the attacks had gone through. So these were both guests, guests and staff of the Taj Hotel... ...together with many other um, different attack sites throughout... ...who went onto this documentary and gave a very human perspective... ...of what basically they had to endure... And one of the things, one of the big points of difference between this story and many other terror attack stories is even though you had this sort of sprawling, you know, quite modern, you know, massive metropolis of 20 million people, they don't really, they didn't really have the infrastructure to have security services that could respond to such an attack. And so you had regular, ordinary, everyday people having to be there for one another and sort of, you know, try and protect one another while these attacks were happening. It took over eight or nine hours for the first SWAT teams to come in from New Delhi, which was on the other side of the country. And so you had all of these, um, you know, first-hand survivor accounts of what people had gone through. So, for instance, in the Taj Hotel, where you had people from every conceivable walk of life, wealthy, poor... Um, you know people from all different religious persuasions um, they were under assault for days on end. They were being shot at and bombed and you know, set on fire. all this sort of stuff was going on and you know you had over fifteen hundred people caught up caught up in that hotel yeah. and it, you know it 's a minor miracle that despite everything they went through over ninety nine percent survived like all but thirty two were killed and it 's tragic obviously that thirty two died but it's a testament, testament to the sort of heroism and the courage and the altruism of the other survivors that they were there for one another to get through it. And, yeah, hearing these stories firsthand, first in the interviews from surviving Mumbai, but then later having done you know, many, many months of research and spoken to many people who lived through it, I really got sucked into the story. So.
0: And the title Hotel Mumbai is a really nice way of paying tribute to the hotel staff who mm-hmm. did something beyond heroic. And took care of the guests. I mean, these are people who they don't know, total strangers from all over the world, who in many cases are much luckier than them, who are fortunate to be very wealthy, and some of the staff are not very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And they put their lives at risk to help these complete strangers.
1: Yeah. And it's this, this is one of the things that I was grappling with from, from the outset. You would expect that if you were in some kind of life or death situation, that immediate first person survival instincts would sort of kick in and you'd try and save yourself and what you know what was so sort of perplexing how in not just one or two cases but literally in dozens of cases you had people putting their own lives on the line to act altruistically to save others this is, you know, as you pointed out, both in the instance of staff looking to save guests but also guests looking to save one another. Yeah. And that sort of psychology of altruism is something that we looked into quite quite intensely. Mm. You know, you had kitchen staff from the Taj Hotel who were literally stuffing pots and pans and baking trays down their shirts. These were to act as bulletproof vests as they're shielding their guests from gunfire.
0: Astonishing.
1: You know, it's You know, if you wrote that, People wouldn't, you know, it's, it's difficult to even conceive of these things. Um, you know, there was a, a, a woman who's now become a, a friend of mine, Daniela Federici. She was one of the survivors of the attacks. She's an Australian photographer and art director who's caught up with the, in the hotel with some of her friends. In fact, another one of her friends who's, you know, um, you know, quite a prominent Australian celebrity of sorts, I think she had just left the hotel to have a cigarette and as she was on her way out... Um, you know, to go out to smoke the cigarette, the gunmen were literally coming through the door oh, the other yeah. way, and as she took her first puffs, she heard the gunshots, which they thought were firecrackers, and then later figured out that actually her friends were now in the middle of a terror attack. Uh, I'll loop the story back to the beginning. Daniela was caught inside, and, you know, they were there for hours and hours on end these big decisions, like they all had families okay, do I call my family? Do I say I'm okay? As the night progressed and they weren't sure if they were going to make it, what do you tell your eight-year-old kid? What do you tell your mother? All these things are going through their head. Yeah. But a fascinating thing happened. They were on one of the higher stories of the hotel, I think you know, six or seven stories high, and, um, and the room was filling with smoke because by now that wing of the Taj was, was on fire, but they couldn't crack... The windows, because you know they're double pane glass, and they, they couldn't sort of break out either way. They're so high up, and one of the um, one of the terrorists had thrown a grenade from an upper level, which had come down and somehow cracked the window enough oh. that they could get a champagne bucket. They broke the window, and you know then they're many stories up. The fire is now almost licking their backs. And you would expect, you know, they would be fighting to see who could get out first. They'd made note. Uh, they'd made sorry ropes out of knotted bed sheets and curtains. Yeah. so They could get down, and yet the strangest thing happened. Patiently, they waited as one another were lowered, you know, down this um, down the side of the building, yeah. whilst the fire was licking their backs behind them. Anyway, so this is a long way of saying that, yeah, this this sort of altruism um, and and common decency is there in humans en masse, even in the darkest of times. And that's something that I definitely wanted to look into.
0: It's also a movie that certainly has bad guys. I mean, there are real terrorists who commit horrible atrocities and are not portrayed in any kind of positive way. But typically in a movie like this, you know, the guests turn on each other and human cynicism becomes one of the bad guys. Mm. This is a movie where people really do learn from each other. There's a very well-to-do guest who assumes the worst about the Dev Patel character mm-hmm. because he's wearing a turban. And he gives a, a monologue about what it means to be a Sikh, mm. which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and completely puts her back on her heels, but also puts us as an audience back on our heels because everything that we've assumed uh, or might have assumed is proven wrong. And we sort of get a real sense of the humanity and the backstory of every single human being that we lock eyes with. And it's just a really powerful moment. I mean, it
1: was. Well, it's funny you bring that up because, like, when we were conceiving of how the story was to unfold, obviously it's a true story, but there's thousands of individual stories that you can explore and look in there. But one, um, one sort of film that we looked at quite closely was Dogged Afternoon, mm-hmm. where you had, you know, unknown characters, meaning no backstory, no exposition. You know, they are casing the bank that they're going to rob, and then Al Pacino and John Cazale enter. You don't know anything about them. Quite early on, you know, the inciting incident, in that case the bank robbery happens, in our case the terror attack happens, but then it's under, um, you know, it's when they're under pressure basically that people's true colours, you know, begin to emerge, at least in the case of Dogged Afternoon, that's what had happened, and, you know, and this was sort of like a, um, you know, it was was an inspiration for us in terms of how to deal with the structure of the story, because... You know, we would when we first started speaking, you know, to the survivors of these attacks, we didn't particularly know where the story was going to go. Meaning, were we going to concentrate on one particular survivor's story? Was it going to be a dual protagonist thing? But I think the fact that we interviewed so many people and we, in in researching the story ourselves, found all of these different perspectives, that kind of guided what the film was, and it was kind of like an attempt to put people. ...in the eye of the storm, in the centre of these attacks... ...and without backstory, without exposition... ...try and sort of pull the onion layers away... ...to see what people's true characters were. And so that scene that you bring up with, with Dev... ...and, and the, um, the older lady and the, the moment that they have... You know, is gleaned from one of the many interviews that we we had done, mm. where you know different sides of people kind of kind of emerge, and that's that's something that um, you know we try to do throughout the film. In fact, you know the gunman that you brought up as well, th- that was another really um, important uh, part of the film for me, or part of the underlying story for me, in that you know what what came abundantly clear from looking further into their stories is that you know these obviously these people also had a story and they had families and they had hopes and they had dreams and they had ambitions of their own yeah. now you know it's not to excuse in any way what they did but you know we spend a lot of time trying to understand what what drove these men to do what they do these young men to do what they do and through a, um, through a lawyer who I knew in Australia, Brian Hayes, who had since become a producer on the film, we were able to get um, you know, the transcripts and um, the confessional videos and the intercepts that were being taken place between the gunmen and their handlers. Amazing. And a lot of that was used verbatim. Brian is friends with the defense counsel, the prosecutor, and the judge of the sole surviving terrorist, Ajmal Kassab. So we had thousands of pages of documents to draw on. And, and basically we tried to infuse a lot of that into the film to give a, a sense of where they had come from and what they were doing.
0: It's interesting because you do come to understand these characters completely, the terrorists, without empathizing with them in any way. There's no point where you go, oh, I kind of see their point. Mm-hmm. What you see is how people who don't have any opportunity are really easily exploited and turned down a very dark path by someone who seems to be pure evil. <laughs> yeah. We never meet the sort of... the. I don't mean to minimize it by saying the sort of... But there is a character who's almost like a Darth Vader or a big bad mm-hmm. who's the, the very awful person behind the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, in the corner, uh, the, the bull, who is a mysterious presence and we never really learn his motives. And honestly, who cares? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing to justify the atrocities that this person carries out. Um, but you do see how he manipulates his foot soldiers and lies to them Yeah, and I that does feel like a really accurate portrayal of how terrorism works
1: well if you if any of your listeners go online and they just google um, you know uh, Mumbai attacks uh, phone intercepts or terror phone intercepts you'll hear verbatim uh, what was being said see the Indian security forces were able to intercept the calls between the gunman and their handler back in Pakistan and you know, it's just bone-chilling what what is being said. And not because it's all fire and brimstone and fury, although there is a bit of that, but sometimes in just the absolute casual way that they're talking about things. You know, line them up, shoot them by the window, and then go around and, you know, check the downstairs area. Yeah. And it's said with as much passion as someone instructing you, you know, how to change a car tyre or something, just yeah. with flat, you know, um, matter-of-factness. And... You know that one of one of these um one of the main handlers in fact, was recently captured in Pakistan. Um, he is now under house arrest, and this is after you know eleven years of authorities searching and not searching for him. I think he ran for political office um, at some point in Pakistan after the attacks had happened. This is the bull character. This is the bull character, and he was yeah, he was recently captured a couple of months ago um, by uh, by the Pakistani government.
0: Wow. Well, this is a movie, and it's something that we're thinking about a lot more with Joker, um, where people are a little bit you know, nervous to be in a theater sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joker, it certainly came up a lot with increased security and things like that, and people being concerned about what could happen. This was a movie where I was constantly checking the exits. Um, I don't think because I felt like anyone in the theater had ill will or anything like that but just because anywhere I was at that moment while watching that movie would have put me in that paranoid state because you do realize this could happen you know the odds are very good that it won't happen of course but it could happen really anywhere and it's the only movie I've ever seen that made me seriously think you know I do need to get a gun <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> not a don't I've get a gun had. man <laughs> which is not a thought I've ever had <laughs> it quickly dissipated I saw the movie you know <laughs> six months ago and I didn't get a gun but um it made me more it made me understand how people could think that way definitely
1: look it I, I th- in some levels it does um, you know I personally am not a proponent of that because yeah. okay, you get a gun, but then you know the next guy gets a gun and right. who knows who's who and everyone shoots one another you know i I don't know what the answer is you know to these kind of problems necessarily, but I've got an idea uh, I've got my own idea, and that's that it's not about. Metal detectors, and it's not about more police, and it's not about guns necessarily. It's about trying to understand why these things happen at a far more fundamental level. Because you yeah. said that you know there's statistically there is very little chance that you or I or that any of these, any of your listeners are going to be caught up in anything like this. You've got far more chance of slipping and. Know, breaking your neck or something on the, you, you know, in the bathtub. A car accident getting here. I, I did indeed. Yeah. So you know, had a. I'm not the best driver, in the world, <laughs> especially on LA roads.
0: It's happened to me too.
1: But um, but yeah, no, it's you know, it's to try and look at you know fundamental inequalities and and far, you know, far um, greater things at play that basically lead people into, um, you know, not identifying with one another and basically um you know, allowing extremism to breed. And that is through some of the things you talked about, you know, fundamentalism, through um, lack of education, ignorance, poverty, you know, a lot of these sorts of things are are, st- are the drivers of, of what goes on.
0: And the West does play a role in that. I mean, what we decide to invest in, what yeah. we decide to care about, whether we decide to...
1: We drop bombs now, and 20 years later, you know, the victims of those bombs or their kids. will um, you know you know, may be prone to, you know, to fight back. Yeah. And so these are the long-term costs of, you know, of living in a complex world. And like, you know, the, yeah, the, the film has come under some criticism here and there, but it's, you know, we sat across the table from so many people who lived through this experience, you know, f- people of all different religious persuasions, Christians, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, Jews, you name it, and one really special thing had happened in the Taj Hotel, and that's all those divisions, you know, that usually exist in the world or that we are told in the media that exist. They evaporated and they divided, and you had perfect strangers working together to save one another. In fact, BBC did a um, did like a, a special, um, you know, investigation on the psychology of heroism. And they used what happened in Mumbai at, at Taj Hotel um, as one of their examples of what it is in you know, the deep evolutionary recesses of our brain that, imp- that sort of compel us to commit these altruistic acts. And you know they brought up the kitchen workers who, in some cases, had got out of the hotel, had escaped, and they turned back to go and save their fellow co-workers and their guests. But they also brought up this BBC study where they had Harvard psychologists and other people come on. They also brought up sort of things like in Alaska somewhere there was a case where a bear was eating um, trash from a garbage bin and grabbed this woman and was basically about to kill her. Without thinking, another guy, old man, 70 years old, saw it. Just without even, he was guarding without thinking. He picked up his shovel, he ran over and he started whacking the bear. Then the bear grabbed him. Another neighbour down the street who didn't know either of them came out with a gun. There it is, a gun. And scared the bear off. And But you, you had all of these people. You'd think, well, hang on, I'm going to save myself. Yeah. I'm not going to risk my life for strangers. Although, Time and again, this happens, and you know, hopefully those instincts um, you know, can, be, can be nurtured.
0: Well, the answer to gun control <laughs> is my brother recently visited a lot of national parks, and then when he left, he brought me back. I'm in California. He mm. brought me back some grizzly repellent and said, I have to get on a plane. I can't take grizzly repellent with me. Why don't you keep this canister of grizzly repellent? And I accidentally sprayed it just to see what it was like, and then had to be out of the room for the next oh, two Jesus. hours and <laughs> rubbing my eyes out with water, and that's not with pointing it in my eyes. <laughs> so if you don't want to get a gun, but you also don't want to get home intruded, I recommend and get <laughs> some grizzly <laughs> repellent,
1: dude. I come from Australia. We got every bloody animal there who wants to kill you, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we don't have guns, and it's it's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean pepper spray will do the job. It's yeah. Just an aside. Uh, so I want to talk about the incredible journey that this movie had. Mm-hmm. It was such an amazing number of ups and downs and I think any movie maker who's going through the process of finding distribution and just getting their picture made in the first place will be able to relate to some of the things that you went through and some of the lessons that you learned um correct me if I'm wrong here you were kind of a Sundance darling in 2016 was it Sundance? No
1: no we uh so the film I had this is my first feature film my short films had won awards at a bunch of different festivals but we had to convince the financiers ultimately that I could make a movie and quite a complex one at that. Um, you know, I'd like to say there was a lot of planning in terms of overall strategy, but without wanting to sound too romantic, it was just following a deep seated passion for this story. And that, you know, unlocked, um, you know, some opportunities to work with some really good people. Um, you know, my, you know, our producing team, my my crew, who I was able to bring on from previous short films, and um, and basically, you know, we just, you know, from a very early stage poured our poured, you know, my me and my co-writer John Colley poured our hearts into the research, put our hearts into trying to, you know, find as much out about this story as we could, and you know, it was a very early draft of the script that we brought out to cast, and I guess had I had I realised how important it was to cast the actors that we ended up casting, mm-hmm. perhaps I would have been far more nervous mm-hmm. and mucked up the, <laughs> the you know the interviews or whatever, the meetings. But um, that didn't happen, and basically everyone that we went to first up, you know, accepted and wanted to do the film. I think they found something in the story that they could relate to or that, that drove them. I know in Dev's case in particular, he was on the awards circuit as an 18-year-old for Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. And it was when he'd gone to visit his mum back in London that he had seen her crying in her living room. He asked her why, and she just pointed the TV screen, and it was the CST train station in Mumbai, which, if you'll remember, mm. at the end of Slumdog was the scene of the happy ending, the dance sort mm. of thing. And now a few months later, after Toronto but before the Oscars, it was a bloodbath from the Mumbai attacks. Yeah. And at that day in particular, I think he said, um, "You know, I, I, if there's a story that's ever to be made about this, that that you know really says something, I want to be a part of it." I think that that helped get Devon. Yeah. He was critical for our financing. Lion was, you know, just coming out when he got Oscar nominated for Lion. You know, that helped us a lot more. Same with Army, uh, Hammer, and Call Me by Your Name. Mm-hmm. You know, we um, you know we were able to build a really great. Um, I think quite authentic cast, people who are cast authentically from where where they came from. Nazanin Boniadi plays a um, British-Iranian heiress. She's not an heiress, but she's (laughs) British-Iranian and she knows a lot about this world. Anyway, all of these things came together, um, you know, to allow us to get, you know, some momentum because we had some cast and and we had a story. But, yeah, we went through hell and back with the movie. The film was a Weinstein film. Um, They didn't put one single cent into the film, Mm -hmm. um, but they had secured distribution rights in America and the UK and they weren't producers on the film and that they didn't have uh, you know input over the development or production or anything like that their role was yet to come their role was to distribute the movie now our first test screening ever of Hotel Mumbai uh, took place on October 6 2017 which is the day the New York Times article came out so basically everything that they were to do on the film was yet to come. Like, we're literally the last film through. And so, you know, we they weren't able to do anything because, you know, everything started collapsing literally when our first test screening had happened.
0: So in March, March 2016, which seems like... Lifetime ago, March 2016, <laughs> you're acquired by the Weinstein Company, which in March 2016 seemed like an amazing thing because you didn't know any of this. Of
1: course not. I'm a filmmaker then, from Australia, right. and one of the biggest producers distributors in the world wants to do the film. Mm. We thought, fucking great. Yeah. Um,
0: and that means you're going to get the classic Harvey Weinstein Oscar push and all of that stuff, and then the day of your first test screening, the New York Times writes the Harvey Weinstein story, and we find out who Harvey Weinstein really is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, oh and, and uh, so then what followed was eight months of turning up to work every day, not knowing the film was ever going to come out, having, um, you know, we went into vicious legal disputes with, in bankruptcy because obviously the company ultimately went into bankruptcy. Right. And uh, we had an incredible um, lawyer heading the case, um, Uncle Larry and uh, mm-hmm. his co-worker Susie, Larry Gabriel, and he went to battle for us, but it took eight months, you know, to get the film out. And that involved having to raise more money to buy the film back off a company who'd never given us any money to begin with. It meant, you know, then having to try and sell it without knowing, you know, when we're actually going to get it out. All of the international territories had already paid money for it and wanted to release it. And the weirdest thing is, um, the weirdest thing of all in all of this is, had it not been for an accident on set that I had, you know, the film could have been done for anyway in a in an even worse way. Uh. In that, I very stupidly um, managed to you know have an accident, cut off the end of my thumb whilst we were making the film. Wait a
0: minute! Oh my God! Here. And oh God! And
1: Dev Patel found a bit of it. He rushed it to the hospital. He found me a doctor to reattach it. Who was the father of a of a actor that he'd worked with in Slumdog Millionaire. This is all happened in the middle of the night. I still filmed for a few days after that to finish off Army and, and Naz's, Naz's role uh, because they had to go on to other projects. But we still had huge amounts of the film to do, big action set pieces. And the doctors and the insurance people said he can't go you know, with the uh, you know, end of a limb missing because it could be infected and all of this. How, how did you cut off the end of the thumb? I went... some of my actors were sweating and they were hot and I went to move a fan to cool them down and the front of the fan had a cage on it the back of the fan didn't but you you couldn't see that from the front I expected the front would look the back would look like the front anyway so off came the thumb and uh, (laughs) and basically this, this meant that we had two months of downtime that had a ripple effect which basically meant that we didn't finish when we were meant to finish we finished a few months later and had we finished earlier, we would have already have had our public premiere right. of the film. Then the collapse would have of Weinstein would have happened, which would have meant our film would have had its public premiere, but then it would have been in limbo for eight months and it would have been done because right. Right. like multiple other films were in this situation. So in a weird way, this ended up having us scrape by because it delayed us just enough that our, it was our test screening on it, our premiere that had happened you know before the collapse and we lived to fight another day.
0: So you sacrificed your thumb not knowing it to <laughs> your movie.
1: I did. And and the weirdest part of all is when I was sitting in a hospital bed in Mumbai wondering what the hell I was going to do. The production company, who were amazing there, um, they did Slumdog Millionaires, Zero Duck 30, a whole bunch of productions. They had sent someone from their company to sort of watch over me and look out for me. And I'm like, look, I really don't need it. The hospital's great. And they're like, no, Indian hospitality, tradition, whatever it is, that someone will be there with you. And then so in the middle of the night when, you know, I was awake, I had nothing else to do, I started talking to the guy. And he proceeded to tell me the story, the Indian mythic story of Eklavio and Arjun. And Eklavio is the young warrior who literally has to cut off his thumb in order to prove his worth to his guru – and the guy that he, you know, the other main protagonist in the story is named Arjun. Dev Patel's character in our film is named oh, Arjun, no. and he was the one that found, literally found my thumb on the barroom floor, um, you know, of you know of a Mumbai sort of place, and brought it to the hospital and reattached it. So there's all these weird, insane coincidences. So you have to look <sighs> back and laugh at some of these things.
0: <laughs> this makes me like the movie even more. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's yeah, crazy. Wow. So you gave blood for the movie. Gave it's
1: blood for the literally this time, not just figuratively.
0: Uh, can you take me inside what it was like the day of your test screening, which is supposed to be one of the best days of your life, and it's just utterly destroyed by something totally outside of your control?
1: To be honest, we didn't know the extent of how bad things were going to get or really what had happened. It was... You know, I may have the order slightly wrong, but I don't think I do. On that October sixth, there was one article came out that said stuff was really bad, um, but it wasn't until a few days later that a second story came out, which was even worse. Yeah. And then it just sort of got worse and worse from there. We, uh, you know, we're just like pretty much like everything else in the film—the thumb, many other th- things that had happened on the way. We just kind of you know, it's like when you're running a big marathon, if you try and look to the finish line, you'll probably Mm. get too tired. So the best thing to do is just to look down and just do one step at a time. And it was literally just that it was like, okay, this article's come out, it's really bad. Um, Who is this person that we're working with? Um, You know, all we can do is, um, you know, is just deal with it. And you know, like there are so many other things that you know, tragic things that sort of fishtailed with the film, that um, you know that I could bring up. Like the that was the that was that test screening. The reason we had the test screening on that day is the earlier test screening that we were going to have um, was scheduled at a date that was the which was a little bit earlier, which was the day after the Las Vegas mass shooting. And so oh. that happened on a Sunday. Our test screening was meant to be on a Monday. Obviously, with what had happened the night before, we couldn't do it, so we put it off. Then, um, you know, these sort of things just it just kept happening. And, and so it's, you know, you... Obviously, when you make a film that deals with highly confronting, you know, in some respects, brutal subject matter, you know, you don't expect it to be smooth sailing... What I'm what I'm sort of really, um, you know, thankful for and, and I guess encouraged by in a way is that a lot of people are seeing, you know, the flip side to the coin and the other side to that story. And that's all the stuff we were talking about earlier, which is, yeah. you know, these incredible human stories of resilience and altruism that, you know, didn't just happen in one or two specific cases but were happening time and time and time again. In fact, we had the general manager of the Taj Hotel at our New York screening. Here's a man who lost his wife and his two children in the attacks. He managed the Mumbai Hotel. His name was Karim Kang, amazing man. He had um, had his wife and kids in a suite where they lived. When the attacks first started happening, no one really knew what was going on. It's like, lock the doors, stay in, we're gonna get, have the police deal with it. Soon after, they set fire to the wing just below where his family were and they were all incinerated. He did not leave the grounds of that hotel until every last uh, survivor was out. He lost everything there was to lose. And then years later it came time to see the film and he came to our New York premiere. I was very nervous about him being there. He hadn't seen the film before with other survivors that we'd screened it to, you know, like Chef obroy who's the who's the, one of the main characters in the film. He'd yeah. seen the film before coming to Toronto and, um, you know, something that we would always do as, as protocol to make sure everyone's okay with it. And I said to Karen "Be look, you haven't seen the film. Maybe it's not the best thing to see it publicly first. We'll do a private screening. And then if, and he goes, my boy, I lived through this. I've lost a lot. There's nothing that you can show me on that screen that is is going to equal what I've already been through. Please, I want to see it at the premiere. And afterwards he came and he said, thank you for honoring the stories of our guests and our staff and what they'd gone through. And, you know, and his, his story wasn't, um, you know, w- wasn't only unique to him and that you had so many other people who've been literally through hell and back, um, but, you know, it's too cliche to say they've come out stronger because obviously there's huge damage that has occurred, but the, the sort of the resilience and the, the strength that they showed, you know, out forget filmmaking, just as a person is something that yeah. to me is truly inspiring and, you know, it's, yeah, it's something.
0: Yeah, who they are really comes through in these moments. Yeah. Just the purity of their of their souls comes through. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember being on a subway once when it went dark and just thinking, like, there were a couple sort of dicey moments. This was right after nine eleven in New York and the subway went dark. And I just had this really awful thought of, now we're going to find out who we all really are. Mm-hmm. And then the lights came back on, so we didn't have to find out.
1: No, but there is that thing, isn't there?
0: But they really had to go through that for real, not just entertain the thought for a fleeting second, but Mm -hmm. to actually go through that and come out absolutely heroically and to do such credit to humanity.
1: Well, look, you see it in, like, disaster sites and that. Sure, there's looting and other things that take place, but in many cases, you know, when there's a big flood or a fire, you know, you have perfect strangers working together to get supply packages out and to offer rides to people and all of that. You know, we are, I think, often told in the media how bad one another is, you know, and how how divided we are. But, you know, one thing that tragedy can teach us is how, like, you know, when faced with a common threat or just when faced with a a really tough situation, humans can also be capable of really inspiring, um, really beautiful things. And, you know, I think that is something which, um, you know, which really shook me to my core in... uh, in, in learning about what happened in, in Mumbai.
0: Yeah. And obviously, th- sorry, I don't have a good transition here. I'll <laughs> just hold off. No, that's right. It seems like separately Hotel Mumbai is getting a happy ending because it did go through such a crazy journey to the screen. And then once it reached the screen, you have the Christchurch mosque shooting, Mm -hmm. which again scares people, Mm -hmm. and you couldn't show it in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that got a lot of attention and put people on edge. I mentioned Joker before and how this is one of those movies that makes you a little bit nervous Mm -hmm. while you're watching it. Mm -hmm. Well, very nervous Mm -hmm. when you're watching it because it's real. Now it's on Hulu. Now people can watch it in the comfort of their homes and feel maybe an added layer of safety. That seems like a kind of happy resolution for this film. This is this might be... I think this is a better film to see in a theater. Mm-hmm. I think every film is better to see mm-hmm. in a theater. But I think this is a movie that some people will see at home that they wouldn't have seen in a theater because of whatever. I, I don't know if I want to be part of that group experience. Well,
1: you know, I, I think part of it is that. Part of it's also, you know, to get a movie on a lot of screens these days has got to have a huge push behind it. And so whilst, you know, when the film came out um, early this year in America you know, they had had you know, great feedback, great responses, you know, went to a lot of the screenings and the Q and A's and the Twitter and all that sort of stuff. But what I've been amazed by is it's kind of like the film that never stops. It's mm. always, because of all of the Weinstein stuff in particular, it threw the whole distribution chain out. And so rather than everywhere releasing at once, it has been kind of staggered. So, for instance, just a month ago it came out, or a little under a month ago it came out in England, mm-hmm. where Sky Cinema did a uh, you know day-and-date release on their premium digital platform as well as in theatres. And... You know, again, you know, you had um, you know f- 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 thousands of comments on the internet and social media and all this sort of stuff. People discovering the film, finding the film, and that seems to be growing. You know, um, I'm not on social media myself, but um, you know, now with all the thing about Hotel Mumbai, I you know have gone on to have a look, yeah. and you know to see the comments and to see I don't know like. Uh, it's really having a profound effect on people. And it hasn't yet come out in the biggest, most important territory that there is for this film, and that's India, yeah. over a billion people. It's their 9-11, and it's coming out next month in Mumbai where they're planning ZTV. Um, another company who've got there are planning a massive release. And yeah, the film is really getting out there. We've had, as well as you know, a lot of amazing audience feedback, We've had a lot of security services, you know, in America, in LA, in New York, in the UK, in various places, um, you know, come out and they're doing screenings for, you know, their own um, personnel, you know, to uh, use as a conversation starter to talk about the film. We've had people from the State Department, from Council of Foreign Relations, we've had academics who's, you know, who's, who's... you know, sole focus is, you know, in that part of the world, India, Pakistan, South Asia, um, you know, come and watch the film and say really, you know, highly compliment complimentary things about how we, you know, tackled the story and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, to be honest, as a filmmaker, that's fulfilling because on, on the one hand, you can watch the film and just see a survival thriller, and it's very much that. But... You know, there are a lot of, there are many layers to that story and to what's going on in the film, which I think some people um, find it difficult to pick up on the first time um, watching it because it's such a difficult watch to actually get through. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a there's a prominent critic in Australia who, after seeing the film for the first time at Adelaide Film Festival at its premiere, hated it mm-hmm. and basically, you know, had some pretty evil-looking eyes for me after seeing the <laughs> film. And then when she'd seen the film a few weeks later, you know, to review for the show she was doing, um, she said, you know, all of the stuff that riled me up the first time I had seen it, I was able to put aside and see the film in a different light again and ended up giving it four stars. And it's, you know, I think it is because it's a visceral kind of assault on the senses. It's intentionally trying to put people, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the belly of the beast, so to speak. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's good that, you know, people are seeing other things in it too beyond beyond just the survival element.
0: What a huge compliment to be able to affect somebody both ways. I mean, to have <laughs> yeah, to make right? a movie that's so, <laughs> that makes such a statement that someone can have one very strong reaction to it and then have almost the opposite strong reaction to it once they think about it more. Mm-hmm. I do find that with some things that I really, really love that I hated them the first time I saw mm. them. And it just means the film has done something really different from other films.
1: Well, the word she used, I said hated before, the word she used was repulse. Like I, mm-hmm. she goes, like, it was found it very, you know, found it difficult to, um, to, to contemplate what had happened. Um, couldn't look away. Look, on the other thing is we, you know, read the tweets and stuff. And, like, there's so many tweets. You know, I put it on in the background while I was making tea. I ended up burning my dinner because I couldn't look away from the screen and <laughs> all of these sorts of things. <laughs> that anyway. is not a watch yeah. while you're making tea movie. It's not a background <laughs> no, no.
0: movie on Netflix. It's not a light romantic comedy that you can half pay attention to. It is. That it is not. <laughs> you need to pay close attention. Well, can you talk about the Indian release and what that's going to be like? I mean, will it be in theatres? Will it be... Yep,
1: it'll be in theatres across India. They um, have got it in, I think, five different Indian languages, mm-hmm. um, as well as in in, um, in English. And, you know, it's difficult to overstate how, how big an effect that had on the psyche of India, but especially on the people of Mumbai. Like, you can't meet a person in Mumbai that... You know, hasn't got one degree of separation from what happened. Everyone has a story, and we're profoundly affected by, by what had gone on. And so, there's obviously um, I've got a you know sense of trepidation about being someone who's not Indian coming to make this film, and that's something that um, that's something which you know, literally from you know day zero, was something that we we're grappling with and trying to find our way with. It's why I think the research period. Took such a long time, like we spent close to a year not writing a single thing, but just listening, interviewing, finding out, um, you know, what people had been through and what they had experienced. Um, you know, also the the attack specifically focused on the tourist part of, of Mumbai, South Mumbai, and many tourist spots were hit. You know, cynically because they wanted the world media, you know, to take notice, but also because they wanted to you know attack international people um you know guests and and tourists also and so you know trying to capture all these different perspectives you know is a challenge and it's something that you do feel a sense of responsibility which is now amplified when we go back to india to show it um you know that being said we have screened it in india already privately we screened it for um the staff members the survivors of the taj hotel earlier um earlier this year Mm -hmm. which went very well um And film and being film releases being what they are and torrents and internet being what it is, a fair number of people (laughs) have actually seen it in India and have, have, you know, no, um, no short amount of compliments to make on it, but, you know, we'll see how it goes and, and hopefully, you know, the, the people will find some, find something in it.
0: On your road to becoming a filmmaker, can you give a little bit of bio about yourself and what, the low point was on your road what the hardest survival job that you did
1: um, I I studied law in Australia I um, I didn't study film initially I had the opportunity to come to the states to uh, to University of California in Santa Barbara and I did a one year I
0: oh, went to DC Santa Barbara you did yeah put her there gotcha what year were you there I was 97 okay I was, I was just after you I was 2001 2002
1: oh, that's awesome but um, but yeah, no. Wait, were you in film
0: though? I, I did film for like a year. Wait, and
1: with like Dana Driscoll and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh, first dude. class
0: they gave me was animation. Yeah, and, and yeah, I dude. I was terrible at animation. And I was like, this is not for me.
1: With Dana. <laughs> and
0: I realized like what I should do is write. <laughs> but I didn't realize that until probably 20 years later.
1: Wait, so you were there with Don Hertzfeld? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And Ellison Con- Hall and...
0: Constance Penley, the Constance only professor Fenley. who was yeah. teaching a class on porn. Yes, yeah. yes, yep. Yeah. 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 I
1: wish I'd taken that. I know, uh, we Edward all would to. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. a great school. I mean, I love no, it there. It I switched to
0: history, and the history department was fantastic, too. Yeah.
1: but Far out. What yeah. a small world. That's no, no, awesome. I, I loved my time in Santa Barbara. Um, made amazing friends there, and, um, and, you know, it's just a really beautiful place, obviously. And... I wanted to go to film school straight after high school. I'd got rejected from all the ones that I had gone to, and my parents said, "That's okay. You can go to film school, but you got to pay for it," because they didn't want me to go to film school <laughs> at that stage. Like they, they didn't want me to go to another country, basically. But um, it turned out that our law school in Adelaide, Australia, had a reciprocal kind of agreement with UC, where if you know you got into their scholarship program, which or their exchange program, which wasn't you know extraordinarily difficult to do. <laughs> You could go and not pay fees. And, you know, so I got to do a year there, you know, just um, as an exchange scholarship, you didn't have to pay any fees. So it was great. And um, I came back to Australia, uh, finished my law degree, and just got into my, um, you know, you got, what is it? Got, um, you do a, um, like, an a, not apprenticeship. How can I even forget this? I kind of blocked it out <laughs> of my mind, to be honest. Sure. You have to go and do six months working in a law firm in order to get your accreditation and stuff to be part of the bar I and I did that look I, I liked it and everything and it was fantastic but or uh, well, fantastic's maybe a bit too strong a word it was you know it's it was fine but um, while I was in law school I had read a lot about um, immigration in Australia and in particular yeah. these detention centres that they had built in the middle of the country which was um, there's a place called Woomera Detention Centre which is where they used to let off the nuclear bombs in the 50s and test them. It oh, since became wow. a big rocket range and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, they had put refugees, actually from the Middle East and Afghanistan and other places in there. Oh, God. And uh, and that, it was just a horrific kind of situation. And what I was reading in the newspapers was very different to you know, the, what I had read in law school in terms of what these people had gone through. And I had gone to one of, there was like a protest that had gone there, not particularly as a protest, I went there to cover it as a filmmaker. And there happened to be a mass escape that had gone on. So the protesters, who were Australians from all around the country, had gone, you know, to the middle of the country. So this is like 10 hours into the interior of Australia, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. You had all these camping protesters around the facility, and then you had the detainees inside, you know, f- protesting, then rioting, then escaping, and over 100 escaped. Mm. And um, my team and I caught a bunch of this on film. And so then I went back and wrote a story about you know, some of the things we'd learned with the idea being that we could use some of that footage in the, in the actual short film. And, um, and this was like as I was finishing law school. And, um, and then so did all of that. And then I applied for government funding to make this film. And ironically, and I guess it's a testament to you know, Australia is a great country in many ways, the mm. same government that was doing this Gave us the money to make a film, which was criticizing them <laughs> doing this, and I was like, "What? We got the money, really?" And and so that that was a, a really big break for me because you know straight out of university, it was with a proper crew, thirty-five mil, you know, anamorphic camera, you know, with a great team. In fact, the very not the very same team, but many of the very same people that were there on that very short film were on all my short films and on Hotel Mumbai. So the same DP, same post-production team, same visual effects team. You know, that, that really helped having camaraderie with these guys. Anyway, so I had, hmm. had made that. Um, I'd made other short films after that and worked, you know, a bunch of odd jobs in between. You know, I don't know if it's a low point, but, you know, there's one funny story that I have in terms of... Uh, You know, weird jobs along the way. Where I was working for this marketing company that were doing, I guess, different styles of you know guerrilla marketing, and you know the first couple of jobs like they'd always send us on these little assignments. And you know the first first ones were kind of you know normal ish, I guess. Like we had a great job where we're going to the Moonlight Cinema, which was an outdoor cinema in Adelaide, Australia. And the the client was fantastic crackers, which is like a you know chips <laughs> that you eat. And we literally just set up a table. We had all these crackers. Anyone that came to the you know to watch the s- cinema, we'd give them that, and we could watch movies. Fucking great. But the funny story, I don't know if you listeners care, but anyway, I tell you anyway, <laughs> was they gave us um, you know, this other client who had, I don't even know what you call them, but these like little ton of mini tennis rackets and balls with a string attached to it
0: the like paddles that get the, the 1950s play exactly. yes yeah. exactly so <laughs> one of those sad looking
1: things and some genius had invented a new way to have an extendable rope on the ball connected to the paddle so instead of just being a short one they were quite long and so our job was to go to this little training academy figure out how to do all these stunt tricks with these things and like do it through your legs and hit it off walls and that and get kind of really good at it they paid us to do all of that and then you know basically on weekends and on on the weekdays after school we'd go to shopping centers in different parts of the city and pretend to just be like cool kids which we weren't you know (laughs) playing with these things and then if other kids came up to ask us what they were we'd give them free ones and say tell your friends and all of this so you know, um, that was that was one that came to mind. But I've, you know, I've worked oh as an editor, God. worked as a waiter, I've worked as a lawyer, worked in construction, done a lot of little odds and ends <laughs> along the way.
0: Did the paddle craze take off?
1: the The paddle craze did not take <laughs> off. We were not successful in marketing uh, this uh, <laughs> this uh, product.
0: <laughs> um, and the last thing is, are there five? Sort of concise things that you would recommend to movie makers? I mean, there's, I know there's a million more than five, and Mm -hmm. I know you can't condense all of your knowledge down to five minutes, but if you had to do the elevator Mm -hmm. version, what are five things that you've learned as a movie maker?
1: Well, you sent me this message asking this in the car uh, while I was on the way over here, and um, there was horrific traffic on the way over, so I jotted down some notes, and I do have uh, (laughs) five, you know, five things which I think have helped me, and I hope they can help other people. (laughs) First is people. Uh, do everything humanly possible to work with good people who are, you know, hopefully better than you at mm-hmm. what they do than what you do, and they will make you lift your game. And, you know, in saying that, you know, it's kind of obvious, but it's so true. And, you know, it's not just people who have got great credits; it's people who you can work with. Mm-hmm. And most critically, you know, you don't have to agree on everything, but you've got to be having the same movie in mind. Like, there's nothing worse than being working than working with you know, a producer or a DP or whoever it might be, and, you know, they're wanting to get to destination X and you're wanting to get to destination Y. Like, you want to fill each other out and make sure you're wanting to make the same movie. So good people, make sure you're, you know, headed in the same direction together. Um, my God, this sounds cliche, but passion. Uh, you know, you've got to basically choose to do projects that you're passionate about or, you know, if you have to take a job for the money find a way to be passionate about it because obviously movie makings can be fucking hard and you want to, um, you know, that passion is what's gonna get you through. And I know that a million other people have said it. I think they're right and that's why I'm repeating it now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think like on a creative front, it's important to, you know, have some kind of leading light an anchor, like a central theme that you're working towards. You know, what's the central idea that you're trying to explore in the film, TV series, whatever it is that, it is that you're doing? If you don't know what that is, it, you know, you just end up getting lost in uh, all sorts of sort of reasoning and other things, whereas, you know, if you've got a central theme, you know, this there's a story about forgiveness, this is about, a, you know, the son trying to make up with his mother and, you know, get over past problems or something. Whatever the central theme is, if you can have that clear in your mind it doesn't have to be like totally um not everything has to be figured out totally but if you can have you know have that sort of central theme you're exploring i think it makes every other decision much easier because you look at it through that lens and it even might be things which aren't related like you know that should the curtains be red or blue somehow if you know what the central thing it is that you're trying to explore it can help that and and that's like you know, uh, and I, and I think that that's that leads to the final point, which is like, I don't, in my ex, you know experience, limited. You know, it was Hurtumbwa was my first film, so you know I'm kind of talking of my bum a little bit, mm. but you know, I found that filmmaking is not just you know a few big important decisions. It's not just you know who you cast or you know although that's critically important but it's not just who's the star and it's not just where you shoot it's like a zillion tiny little decisions you know and you kind of have to be more in a state of flow than you know anything else really and that's where that central theme comes back because it's like if you have something that you're reaching for and if everyone on the team kind of you know is reaching for that together you know, it can it can help guide those zillions of little decisions that end up making the fabric of what becomes your film. And lastly, humor. Try and have a sense of humor about things. Um, you know, there's an old ancient Greek saying which is like, when tragedy strikes, you know, you should learn to laugh at it. Like laugh at the gods when they fire the lightning bolt at you. And you know, that's uh, we learnt to do that on Hotel Mumbai, and it was and it helped us.
0: That's our episode. If you enjoyed it, I highly recommend you check out Hotel Mumbai on Hulu. If you like this podcast, if you'd like to give us stars or subscribe or recommend it to friends, all those things are great. We also want to personally invite you to check out moviemaker.com or to subscribe to Moviemaker Magazine. If you like this interview, you'll like lots of stuff. You'll find at moviemaker.com and in the magazine. Thanks and see you next week.